As we come to Genesis 39, we come to a very clear topic, no question about what we're talking about today, and the topic is temptation, temptation. Joseph is going to uh, encounter severe temptation. Interestingly, he's going to experience temptation in the area of his sexuality, and uh, this is going to become just a a dramatic, almost soap opera-like event. You might say, man, what's up with sex in Genesis? It's all over the place. I mean, last week we looked at Judah, and he absolutely failed in terms of a sexual temptation. I think that's another reason why uh, chapter 38 is where it's at right before chapter 39, because there is a contrast. This Judah who failed in his sexual temptation, Joseph is going to find a way to overcome sexual temptation. So on a broad level, we get this kind of this contrast going on. And, and people criticize the Bible. You know, why is the Bible so gross and talks about all these uncomfortable things and wars and sex and soap opera and dysfunction? And that's exactly why we believe in the Bible, because the Bible is real. It talks about real things that you and I deal with and how we are going to relate to God in context to uh, real life. And so when we come to Genesis 39, we're talking about temptation and overcoming temptation. And let me jump to really the, the key verse for me in this, in this chapter, verse 10. And lay your eyes on this verse, chapter 39, verse 10. It says, as she spoke to Joseph day after day, and as we're about to see, that is in a suggestive sexual way she's talking to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her, or to be with her. We ask ourselves, well, why is that? He says, and look at verse 9, at the very end of verse 9, he says, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Now, if you and I are going to talk about overcoming temptation, what we've got to get on the table is what we mean by sin. All right, it's a very crucial, critical word that we must understand and we can't forget what it is. Sin in the Bible, the Hebrew word literally means missing the mark, which we've talked about several times. And I would say this, that sin is two things primarily in a human being's life. Number one, it is crossing boundaries and lines that God has established. Okay? So understand this. Sin is not about what my value is or boundary is. Or about what your boundary or line is. It's about God the creator establishing boundaries. And saying come here but no further. Do not cross this line. And the moment we cross lines that God has established as the creator. We are in sin. Now the Bible says about that. Especially in the book of Proverbs. It says if we cross boundaries that God has established. We immediately become foolish. We are foolish if we say to God, God, I know you set this boundary in this, in this line, but I'm going to cross it anyways. The moment we cross over that line, we become foolish people. In fact, the book of Proverbs says there are very intelligent people who are walking around, people who are far more intelligent than you and I, who are very smart, but they are very foolish. Why? Because they are crossing boundaries that God has established, and that's automatically a foolish thing. And the reason why God establishes these boundaries and these lines that we're not to cross is for our protection. God created the world. 
He created it. He created natural laws. He knows how life works. He knows how the soul works, spirit works, the body works. And he says, because I'm the creator and I establish these, these, these laws, I have created you a certain way so that, so that you will not cross these lines. But if you cross these lines, you will slowly begin to disintegrate. You will destroy yourself. Sin will deconstruct your whole life and relationships and everything else. And God cares too much about us for us to cross lines. Now, think about it as a parent. You got a kid. You say, you can go outside and play, but don't cross the street. Now, why do we say that as parents? So I don't get run over by a car. Can I get an amen? And that's God. All right? So, the, so God is not trying to make us feel guilty or religiously uh, overly condemned. That's what Satan wants to do. What God is showing is he says, I don't want you to be foolish. I want you to be wise. I'm inviting you to a life, not of foolishness, but of wisdom. And wisdom is staying within the boundaries and the lines that I have established for you. So sin is foolish. But here's the second thing. This is an important thing. Sin is not only foolishness. Sin is rebellion. Because the moment we cross lines that God the Creator has established, we're not only exposing our life to danger, but we're saying something about God. We're saying to God, you are not relevant. I no longer, in this moment of crossing the line, I no longer believe that you're very important or very central. When my daughters sin, which they never do because they're pastor's kids. Can I get an amen? But let's say they do. The moment they cross lines that I establish for them as a loving father is the moment not only they're exposing themselves to the car coming down the road, but they're also saying something about daddy in their life. They're saying daddy's rule is not important because he's not important. That is a failure of trust in my goodness, which everybody would agree I'm very good. (laughs) That would be a failure. That's why Joseph says, how can I sin, that is cross a boundary, miss the mark, against God? And the world, you understand, is not failing because they're being bad boys and girls. The world is failing because they're failing to see the beauty and the wonder and the glory of a very good and holy and great God. They're failing to see the goodness of God and the wisdom of God in all of creation. So not only are they foolish, but they're rebellious. So what's God inviting us to do in the book of Genesis? Here's what God's inviting us to do. God is saying to us, I want you to have a life of wisdom. And I want you to have a life of worship. I want you to walk in a wise way so that your relationships will be blessed, your body will be blessed, your soul will be blessed, your spirit will be lifted up, and I want you to walk with the awareness that I am the most worthy of worship. That's what God is inviting us to do. And that, beloved, is why overcoming temptation is critical. We must overcome temptation. We must seek a plan to overcome temptation. We must seek a plan to overcome sin. We must seek a plan to walk in the garden that God has for us, to walk in the promised land that God has for us. We must walk in a plan that does not send us down into Egypt and into bondage and out of the garden that God has for us, but in the garden that God has for us. And I know all of us in some way were being tempted. All of us are tempted every single day. Tim Keller preaching on this very text, he says that 
Joseph faces in this chapter three temptations. And what I want you to do as we're walking through this, think about which of these temptations are you being tempted by this week. The first temptation is Joseph is being tempted with power, the abuse of power. And we're all tempted from time to time to take power that God gives to us as a parent, as a boss, as a husband, as a man or a woman, and to abuse our power and not use power to serve, but to use power to lift ourselves up. The second temptation Joseph faces is a sexual temptation. He's tempted manifestly in the area of his sexual life. Some of you might be going through severe temptation, maybe even failing in the area of your sexual life. There is a way of escape today, but ask yourself, am I being tempted sexually? The third area of temptation is despair. When things go bad, when things fall apart, when, when we get thrown into a prison or into a pit, we are tempted to self-pity. We are tempted to, uh, to uh, feeling sorry for ourselves. We're de- tempted to give in to despair and to leave the hope that is ours in God through Jesus Christ. Which of these temptations are you facing? And what I want you to know is that today, I'm going to give you keys from Joseph's lives to overcoming temptation and becoming a wise person who worships God. Let's look at it. Let me talk first under this heading, Joseph's Rise. Joseph's Rise. Look at chapter 39 starting in verse 1. And let me read this text to you at the very first part of it. We ask ourselves when we come to chapter 39, what happened to Joseph when he got sold into slavery? We're about to watch his rise. It's unexpected. It says, now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt and Potiphar. An officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. Ah, but the Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. And his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him. And he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. And from the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house and the field. And so he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Now, blunt history. Let's, if we were looking at this just as blunt, sequential history, we'd be like, wow. Dude got sold into slavery. He goes into Egypt, and it just so happens that he makes this great comeback. Everybody say comeback. It's like Gladiator. It's like Russell Crowe. Remember when he, you know, in the thing, and then he's a gladiator, and he's like, and then, you know what I'm saying? He's in the arena, you know what I'm saying? And we're like, what a great movie. This guy rises to the very top, and not only that, but he finds himself, whoa, he finds himself in the household of Potiphar, and Potiphar is like the commander-in-chief of the army of Egypt, all right? The second most powerful man in the very world of existence. And by the way, if you did any kind of historical background on this period of time in Egypt, this is the apex of Egyptian history. This is this high as Egypt gets is during this period when Joseph just so happens to find himself in Potiphar's home. Potiphar likes Joseph. Potiphar says, 
man, I ain't putting you out in the field, brother. You're coming in. You're going to be chief of staff. You're going to be my number two man. I'm going to give you the keys to my home. You're going to have access to all the stuff. You're going to manage my stuff. You're going to be my chief of staff. You are the man. And we'd be like, whoa, Joseph is like the coolest guy in the world. I want to be like Joseph. See, that's what we're tempted to think that. But behind this blunt history is theological history. And the theological history attributes an invisible hand to the rise of Joseph. In fact, five times it mentions that the reason for Joseph's rise is the Lord. In fact, it uses the special name for the, for the, for the God of covenant, says the Lord, which is a translation of the Hebrew name for God, Yahweh, which just so happens that Doug was singing. Man, Yahweh, Yahweh. I will not sing. I'm sorry. But Yahweh five times, five times it mentions his name. What's interesting about Yahweh being used here is that it's rare in the Joseph narrative for the name of God, Yahweh, to be used. This is one of the few times when there's a flurry of the covenant name of God, Yahweh, being used in, Joseph, in Joseph's narrative. Five times Yahweh, and then five times it uses the word all. And here's the point. The completeness of Joseph's rise is attributed to Yahweh. It's attributed to God. And why is that significant? The reason why that's significant is because the writer of Genesis, Moses, he does not want us to put Joseph up on a pedestal. He doesn't want us to look at Joseph and go, man, the way I'm going to overcome temptation is just look at Joseph and be just like Joseph. I want to be just like Joseph. He doesn't do that. In fact, it would be a pointless tell because there's all kinds of religious literature that talks about heroic people that we're supposed to be like. What the writer is doing, what Moses is doing is he's saying the rise of Joseph is because of God. And what Joseph is going to be tempted by and tempted to do is to think that his rise isn't because of God, but his rise is because of his own wit, because of his own capability, because of his own essential ability and nature and talents. In fact... When you read all of Genesis, from Genesis 1 up to the Joseph narrative, God often reveals himself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob through dreams, speaks to them audibly, sends angels up and down ladders, sends all of these clearly manifest theophanies of himself. But with Joseph, God doesn't do any of those things. God doesn't speak to Joseph audibly. God doesn't do a vision where God speaks to him or anything like that. In fact, even Joseph's dreams have to require interpretation. And you see what's happening. The question is, can you believe in God even when he is silent? Can you believe in God even when you can't see him? Can you believe in God even without the manifestation of great angels coming into our room and speaking to us? That's why we like Joseph so much because his life is more like our life. We have to love God even though we don't see him. Even though we don't see him or hear from him. And I would say this, that one of the first, I'll just say this almost as an aside, almost pastorally. Let me just speak to you as a pastor, a shepherd. Man, I want you to know, it is not about the quality of your faith in God that gets you through life. It's about the quality of the object of your faith. Can I just say that? You are not going to overcome temptation because you're so great. You're going to overcome temptation because you finally begin to realize that God is more than you ever dared hope that he could be. This is a covenant God, Yahweh God, 
who comes into relationship with sinners like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph. He comes into relationship unconditionally and says, I will bless those who bless you. I will will give you land and people. I will give you purpose and a mission. I'm going to make you the light of the world. You're going to be the blessing of the world. No matter where you go, from the palace to the pit to the prison, it doesn't matter. You will be blessed because I will be with you, and I am great and awesome and sufficient. And listen to me, that is exactly where Joseph is going to be tempted in. See, we're tempted to look at this just another sex story. It's not. This is about what Joseph thinks about God. Joseph's rise. Now, I mean, come on. If you read this coldly, you go, man, I, this guy is so annoying, right? I mean, right now, we're just so annoyed because he's, he's smart. He's a great, Joseph's a great leader, and, and, and he's, he's got all of this power, and he looks good. He's got a new garment. He's got a new coat again. You know what I'm saying? He's looking good. And on top of all that, it says he's good looking. Don't you just get annoyed? You're like, what an annoying guy. He's handsome too. But that is the setup for the temptation. Look at verse 7, and let's look at Joseph's temptation. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. But no, keep no, beloved, let's, let's get real. Can we be real? I know it's church, but let's be real. Potiphar, second most powerful man in the world, you know his wife is very attractive. Okay, let's just establish that. I know it doesn't say that directly. I don't think it's too far of interpretation to say, this is an attractive woman that's saying to Joseph, lie with me. All right, verse 8. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, because of me, My master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. Now, what I want you to see, here's what I want you to see. I want you to see the intensity of this temptation. And by the way, when temptation comes, it is intense, is it not? It's intense. And the intensity of the temptation is when she says, lie with me. Now, in Hebrew, which is what this was originally written in, right? Hebrew, Moses, Hebrew, Jewish language, okay, Hebrew. In Hebrew, it's two words, and it's put in an imperative command. So she's not like, hey, you want to go hang out at a club and then have sex afterwards? It's like, no, that's not what's happening. It's more direct. In fact, literally, it is sex now. That's what she says. She says it twice. In fact, it says she says it day after day. Every time she sees good-looking Joseph, sex now. His response is 35. Everybody say 35. 35 Hebrew words. And one Jewish scholar said, these words are nervous words. He's going, you know what I mean? Like, I can't, I can't, because I'm messing. And God, there's God, there is a God, right? I mean, that's what's happening here. That's the reality. In that intensity, though, is the beginning of our solution to overcoming temptation. And there's two I see in Joseph's temptation. First is a spiritual solution. You see, what you're invited to do 
if you're failing in temptation or if you're under temptation, is you're invited to an alternate view of reality and life that includes a robust spiritual understanding of how life works. How can I sin against God? And he's connecting his sexuality with his spirituality. He refuses to compartmentalize and say, well, my sex life is this corner and my spiritual life is this corner. He's saying that the two are intimately connected. He's understanding what both the world and religion refuses to understand about sexuality. Because religion and irreligious worldviews are always two-dimensional when they think about sex. It's always flat. Religion will come to you and just say, well, just stop it. Just, Just stop it. Well, I'm sorry, I can't just stop it, right? I'm sorry, but there's a little bit of perversion in all of us, amen? I can't just not do it. Now, the world comes to us and just says, hey, man, feels good. There's a way to do it safely now. You can do do it any way you want to, and you can keep it safe, and and you'll be protected, and you you don't even have to get pregnant or get diseases anymore because you got got safe sex, and there's protection and everything like that. And the world looks at sex as a flatline thing. And here's what God says about sexuality. And by the way, what God says about all of life is that our spiritual life, our emotional life, our physical life, our soulish life, our relationship of life is deeply connected and when one of those areas begins to fail everything else falls like dominoes everything falls like dominoes in fact the apostle paul probably referring to this very topic of sexuality and sexual sin he says in the new testament first corinthians 6 and verse 17 i believe he has in his mind joseph fleeing He's running from this temptation. I mean, I love Joseph. He's just like, I got to get out of here. You know, he's running. Great picture. And Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 6, starting verse 17. It says, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. The Apostle Paul is saying, look man, human beings are deeply spiritual, deeply emotional, Meant to belong in relationship to God. And when we walk in sexual immorality, when we cross the line, when we go into boundaries that that go outside the boundaries that our loving God has created, we begin to walk and we begin, because listen, sex is fire. And if you play with it wrongly, you will get burned. Note this. I know this is our, I know know our culture looks at this and goes, oh, you're just so old-fashioned. Well, you know what? Let me tell you something. You look at the new fashion, and it's destroying people. That's what it's doing. I I remember I heard about a youth pastor. You know, when you're a youth pastor, you get to talk about sex to teenagers, which is about as much fun as, I don't know, something that's not fun. (laughs) And I heard about a youth pastor, and I used to be a youth pastor. I wish I would have thought of this idea myself. But what he did is he came to church to talk to the boys about sex. 
and he brought a burnt undershirt. It was just burnt and charred, and he brought it on a hanger. And he said, I put this in my closet so that every day when I put on clothes, I'll see this burned shirt because sexual immorality burns and it kills. And he challenged all of them to do that. And, of course, all the parents got upset because the boys burned their shirts, which they wanted to do, and they smelled, their room smelled like charred shirts. But anyways, the point got across, and here's the point. Sexual immorality is fire. Now, if used rightly, it brings warmth and happiness and joy. And let me tell you what we believe at Cross Point Church from our loving God. Here's what we believe about sexuality. Sexuality belongs to a man and the woman in the context of the covenant of marriage. Anything outside of that is crossing the line. You're like, man, you're just trying to make me feel guilty. No, I'm not. I'm trying to persuade you to a wise life. And a life of worship. And anything outside of that line is sin. And some of you, you might be under some severe temptation. You think, this is impossible. I'll tell you how it's possible to overcome sexual immorality, but let's establish those boundaries. Now, I'm going to tell you what, what, what religion does with sex is religion says it's gross and it's impure and it's disgusting and we should never talk about it, which is why churches never talk about sex. They never talk about the biblical worldview of sex because it's uncomfortable and it's gross and it's all of those things. And we just shouldn't talk about it. And we should barely even do it even in the context of marriage, which is a lie. Can I get an amen? The world makes sex a God and says, well, it's God, and we need to do anything that, 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 that brings pleasure, and I'm just going to follow this God of sex wherever it takes me, whatever it does, because I'm just, it's God. It's an idol. I'm going to worship at the altar of sex, and that's a lie, too. The view from God, our Creator, is that sex is a gift, and it's a gift for a man and a woman in the context of marriage. Now, here's what I also want to say, though, is that all of us have failed in this area in one way or the other. That's what Jesus said. Jesus said, there ain't nobody who hasn't failed sexually. We have all failed sexually. And by the way, nobody's making it to heaven because they're heterosexual, by the way. You're not justified by heterosexuality. You're justified by faith alone in Jesus Christ who's forgiven us of our sins. We all make it to heaven because of forgiveness. And sexual sin is not the unpardonable sin. It is forgivable. You can be transformed. You can be changed. That is the good news of the gospel. So we carry this tone of the gospel of grace. We carry this tone of a message from Genesis where God is coming to humanity and inviting them back and saying, come on back. I'm going to bring, I'll forgive you of whatever failures you've made, wherever you've gone wrong. I will bring forgiveness and atonement and healing for you. But come on back because there is grace and there is forgiveness. There is new life in Christ. Listen, if any man is in Christ Jesus, the old has passed away, the new has come. And there might be somebody who doesn't know Jesus here today. And I want you to know, you can come to him and bring him your body, your soul, your spirit, your very life, and he will forgive you. The spiritual solution is to see the deep connection of God in our lives. And when we're separated from God in our actions and our spiritual life doesn't acknowledge him, then we destroy ourselves. But here's the second, so this is the beginning of our solution to overcoming temptation. It's not only a spiritual solution, but a practical solution. And I love that verse that I read at the beginning when it says there in verse 10, lay, lay your eyes on verse 10, chapter 39, verse 10. 
It says, as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. If you have an NIV translation, it says, or even to be with her. And you know what I hear in that? I hear a practical plan. Joseph had a plan. Joseph had a plan every day he went into work because he knew what was coming. Good-looking woman. Who knows what she's wearing? And he knows what's coming. He knows what's going to happen. And so he has a plan. And what's his plan? To not be in the same room with her. What's his plan? To not even hear her. What's his plan? To not even engage in conversation like, I'm not going to have sex with you, but let's sit down and have coffee. No, no coffee. I am not going to be with you. I'm not going to listen to you. La, 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 la. I'm not listening. If you're, if you're an alcoholic, guess what the worst place for you to be in? A bar. Right? If you're angry every day and you're, you're struggling with anger, the worst kind of music you can listen to is headbanging Metallica. Rah, 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 you know what I mean? And if you're struggling with sexual temptation, you got to cut out those realms and those corners and those rooms and those computers and those screens and all of those things that are saying, lie with me, sex now. What's your plan? Because let me tell you something. We can over-spiritualize this thing to a point to where we say, you know, I'm going to accidentally overcome sexual temptation. No, you're not. You're no more going to accidentally overcome temptation than, I don't know, not fall asleep during the sermon. I don't know. <laughs> you know what God says? God says, apply the gospel. God says, use the gospel. Don't waste forgiveness and have a plan. What's your plan for overcoming temptation? You know, for us men, there's so many avenues for sexual temptation now with computers and the internet. Uh, pornography viewing is, is at an epidemic level of viewership. And do you know what? There are tools that you can use to make sure that you're not going to those sites. You can get accountability. Do you know you have the church of men and women who can come together and pray together and hold each other accountable? You can have relationships that you trust where you talk about these things. Jesus was so vivid about this himself. You know what Jesus said? Jesus said this. He said two things, which upsets people to no end. They're like, I think Jesus is a good teacher. And then they hear this, and they're like, I don't like Jesus anymore. Here's what Jesus said. Jesus said, if you look at a woman, even with lust, and you are committing adultery in your heart, and you know what he said? Something very vivid. He said, cut off the arm. Rip out the eye. Now, was he talking literally? Hallelujah. No, he wasn't. But what he was saying was, cut out the things in your life that's causing you to lust. Cut out the things in your life, those realms of life. Get out of there and walk in wisdom and worship by avoiding those very things that are leading you to inevitable sex or any other temptation. That could be applied to the temptation to despair. That could be applied to the temptation of power. What are you doing practically? What's your plan? Because our spiritual life needs to be applied practically. You're like, man, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But I need more. I need far more to overcome temptation in my life for this week. And so let me move to Joseph's keys. And what's going to happen is Joseph's going to be falsely accused. He's going to go to jail. He's going to get the keys to the prison. And we're going to use that little context to talk about the deeper solution for temptation. 
Look at what she does. This horrible woman, by the way. And by the way, the contrast between her and Tamar in chapter 38 makes Tamar look awesome. And the, and the contrast between Joseph and Judah makes Joseph look awesome. Look at verse 12. She caught him by his garment saying, sex now. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. By the way, how sick is Joseph of these nice coats? You think he's sick of them yet? Every time he gets a sweet daddy coat, something bad happens to him. <laughs> don't give me any more nice coats. I don't want a jacket or a coat or anything. I just want my undershirt. Maybe some nice underwear. But anyways, you know, God's probably teaching him like he does all of us to not trust in nice things to help us get through life. The world's surrounded by nice coats and homes and cars. and Well, that's the life. Because those are the very people that are failing deeply in their hearts. Who cares about the coat? Who cares about the nice jacket? I'm going to let it go. I'm going to get out of here. I'm fleeing sin, even if it means I'm more impoverished than I was before. It's better to be a poor man and to walk in God's plan for your life than to have the whole world and lose your soul. That's what Jesus said. Verse 13, as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, by the way, nearly naked, by the way, I don't have time to explain that, but let you do the study. She called to the men of her household and said to them, see, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. So she's blaming her husband. Sounds kind of like Adam and Eve blaming everybody for sin, doesn't it? He came into me, lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that, I lifted up my voice and cried out. He left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. So she's accusing our man Joseph of rape all of a sudden. He raped me, and I screamed, or he's going to rape me. And I screamed, and he left. Then she laid up his garment by her until, until her master came home, Potiphar. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us, this is your fault, came into me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. And as soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, This is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison and, and the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. So the same thing happens in prison that happened in the palace. The keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. And the keeper of the, uh, of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Now stop here real quick. And you're thinking, man, Joseph is going to get bitter? Because he did everything that was right. He was obedient to God. He overcame temptation. And here he is, falsely accused, thrown into jail. And you know he's tempted to look at God and say, what? I did everything right. And here I am in prison. We expect an angry, resentful, despairing Joseph. But skip down really quick. Let me cheat. Skip ahead in the story, chapter 40, and look at verses 5 and following. And then I'll give you the keys of Joseph. It says, And one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, each dream with its own interpretation. And when Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. 
And he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, Why are your faces downcast today? Now, isn't that just just a touch annoying? Hey, guys, why are you sad today? And you know they wanted to go, Because we're in prison. Why are you so happy? Do you not realize this is the pit? Do you not realize that we are here in misery? The cupbearer, the, the whatever, you, we're all miserable. And Joseph's not miserable. And it is the secret of his lack of misery that is the, the keys to us overcoming temptation. There are three keys. Let me show them to you. They're all found. What's Joseph's secret? Joseph's secret is in verse 21. Number one, it says, but the Lord, that is Yahweh, was with Joseph. And you know what you and I need? Number one, here's what we need. We need the covenant presence of God in our life. Do not underestimate the need that you and I have as human beings to be in a covenant relationship and to have the covenant presence with God. Now, what we believe about God is that God is everywhere. God is with all people. But there is a special, unique presence of God that God has for his children, his sons and his daughters. And it is that covenant relationship that is the critical relationship to overcoming temptation. God, the Lord, Yahweh, is in covenant with Joseph. And that's the secret to his success. That's the secret to him overcoming temptation, and that's what you and I need in our relationship with God is we need a covenant. You say, how's that covenant relationship happen? How do I get that covenant presence in my, in my life? A presence that says, I will never leave you or forsake you. A presence that says, I will walk with you through the waters of life, through the temptations of life. How do I get that? And the secret is, is that a greater than Joseph came into this world. And you know who that that greater than Joseph came is? It's Jesus Christ. And you know what the Bible says about Jesus Christ? That he's beautiful. That he's the most handsome of men. The eternal son of God in John 17 says he had, before he came to earth, he had all of the beauty of God. It says even now that the risen, exalted Christ sits at the right hand of the Father. And if you read the book of Revelation, there, behind the emerald throne of God, there are angels worshiping him, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll. Worthy are you, the Lamb of God, who took away the sin of the world. The beautiful, the most handsome of Joseph is Jesus who came into the world. And Isaiah 53 says he was numbered with the transgressors. That when he died on the cross for our sins, there were thieves there around him saying to him, Will you let me into paradise? Jesus, though he was going through that pit, though he was up on that cross, he looked at them and offered them a salvation and a covenant. And he said at the night of his betrayal, in this body and in this blood, I establish a new covenant with you based not on your works, but based on my forgiveness, based not on your religion, but based on my love. And I will give you a relationship with God that can never be taken away. And I will be the one that will come into your life and I will forgive you and I will walk with you and I will show you the way will be your shepherd that's why hebrews chapter 2 verse 18 says this about the greater than joseph jesus christ it says in chapter 2 verse 18 for because he himself has suffered when tempted he is able to help those who are being tempted that is covenant presence of god 
Do you think that Jesus was not tempted in the realm of his power? To abuse his power, to strike everybody down dead. I mean, first thing I would have done on that third day of resurrection is I would have said, Where is Peter? All these guys, these gutless wonders leaving me when I'm dying up on the cross. But he didn't abuse his power. He used his power to save. And do you think that Jesus wasn't tempted sexually? Saving prostitutes, having women around him. He was tempted in all ways as we were. And yet without sin. He knows exactly what it is to be a man. He knows exactly what sexual temptation is. And yet he didn't give in to it. And do you think that Jesus was not tempted by despair? Self-pity. There he was in the garden of Gethsemane, sweating blood. Why me? I'm the son of God. Even Satan himself came to Jesus in the wilderness after he had had not eaten for 40 days and 40 nights. And Satan said to him, hey, you're the son of God. What are you doing, man? You deserve so much more. Jesus could have gotten into self-pity and said, you know what? Forget this plan. I'm going to call down angels from heaven. I'm just going to destroy all of humanity. But he didn't do that. And you want to know why? Because he knew that you and I, we didn't need a religion. We needed a person. We didn't need a program. We needed a relationship. We didn't need some kind of self-help manual to overcoming temptation. We needed a deep, abiding assurance and security and love that's poured out into our hearts. A relationship with God that could change our desires. A relationship with God that could change who we are so that we could become new people in Christ. We could be born again. He knew that's what we needed. And that is what is offered to you and I every single day. And by the way, if you're not a Christian, that is what's offered you today. Believe in Jesus Christ. Believe not in a dream or angels coming or some wild thing. Just believe in the promise because by faith we are saved. And he will save you. He said, come to me. I will in no way cast you out. I will make you and adopt you into the household. And you will be sure that God's presence will be with you always. Joseph knew something about this. The presence of God. The second key. Overcoming temptation is not only the covenant presence of God, but the loving kindness of God. My, my uh, translation in verse 21, it says that he showed him steadfast love. Some of your translation says the loving kindness of God. It's translating the same Hebrew word, one word, hased, which is a difficult word to translate, but it's as close as we can get to the grace of God. But I have to say, I really love the way it says steadfast love because it captures a dimension of God's grace that sometimes we forget. And it's this, that God is kind, God is good, that the relationship God has with us is not like, okay, I'm I'm no longer going to judge you now, enjoy the rest of your life. The loving kindness of God is a presence of kindness and care and compassion and encouragement when we need it. It is the presence of God with a disposition that God has towards us of a, I don't know, a, a hug, an, an encouragement. You know, if Sherry and I, if we said, hey, you know, the key to having a great marriage is just not being mean to each other, that wouldn't be a great marriage, would it? The key to a great marriage is being kind to one another, expressing, going out on date nights, going out and, 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 and expressing kindness and having a disposition. And that's what God is to us. And I have to say to you that as you walk with God, that relationship will be the source of your strength, his kindness. Here's the final thing, and I'll be done. 
not only the covenant presence of God and the, and the loving kindness of God, but also favor with people from God. It says that God gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. Note that Joseph had a good relationship with the prison warden. Joseph had a good relationship with Potiphar. Joseph had a good relationship in all of his relationships. And I have to ask, I have to tell you this. Here's the key, one of the critical keys to overcoming temptation is having great human relationships and asking God to be a part of your human relationships. If I have a great relationship with Sherry and I'm dating her and I'm asking God to bless our relationship and our marriage, I am less likely to give in to temptation because everything, I put all of, my, all of my life on the line of a good marriage and a good relationship. And so when that sexual temptation comes, I'm going to say, no, 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 I love my wife. I was on a date with her just last night. If I have a great relationship with my daughters... And I date them, and I take care of them, and I pray with them. And temptation comes to despair. There's too much riding on those relationships for me to just suddenly give in to temptation. If I have a great relationship with you as a pastor, and and we have a good relationship together, then there's too much riding on that relationship for me just to willy-nilly give in to temptation. Joseph is focused, man, I can't do this to my master, Potiphar. He's given me everything. He's been so good to me. I got I to be good to him. I can't just sleep with his wife. And here it says that he has favor. And I have to tell you, that is the critical thing. Do you have a good relationship with God? And do you have a good relationship with people? And when you have good relationships, that is the key to overcoming sin, crossing lines, being foolish, lacking worship, That's the thing. Once again, I hate to repeat myself, but I think Genesis repeats this all the time. It says that our flaws that we do not like, the sin that gets us, is not because of irreligion. It's because of a broken relationship. And the key to overcoming those flaws and to being restored is a restored relationship to God and having a good relationship with people. That's what Joseph had. Covenant presence of God, loving kindness from God, and good relationships that God blessed him with with people. Let's pray.